0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Sidney Mitchellini, and welcome to the New Books Network. Um, I'm a host on the channel, and today I have Sophia Aptekar um, here to talk about her book, Greek Card Soldier, that is out as of one, almost two months ago, with MIT Press um, about the experiences of immigrants in the United States military. Um, Professor Aptekar holds a PhD in sociology and taught sociology and critical ethnic and community studies at UMass Boston for six years before joining the School of Labor and Urban Studies at CUNY. Um, she's currently working on two book projects: one that we're about, or one, sorry, based on her work with Professor Amy Sin at Queens College on educational work and work trajectories of undocumented CUNY students, and another one, which is what we're going to talk about here. Um, about the experiences of immigrants in the U.S. military from an anti-imperialist perspective, and this book is written from an anti-imperialist perspective, and it's really, it's really awesome. Um, Sophia, welcome to the show. Um, just maybe start off with the same sort of thing that everyone wants to know when you come on the New Books Network: is tell me why you wrote this book. Like, how did there come to be a person um, who is you uh, on the other side of this of this this thing with this book? Like, how did how did, what is the story behind this story from this book?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Sydney. Uh, It's great to be uh, on the podcast. And uh, thanks for asking this question. You know, it really uh, goes back to grad school for me. And I've been out of grad school for a long time. But um, my dissertation was about um, immigrants um, and naturalization. So how, how do people acquire citizenship in the US and Canada? And I ended up writing a book, my first book called The Road to to Citizenship. It's all about um, how immigrants become citizens. And it's really connected to my personal story. So I'm an immigrant, I was born in the Soviet Union, and I came to the US uh, when I was 12 years old. And I went through the naturalization process um, as a young adult. So it was very much, you know, just a few years before I started grad school, it's fresh in my mind. And As part of writing, um, so how did I end up writing a book about the military, because I'm not a member of the military and I have not ever been, um, is that when I wrote my first book, I just learned more about the the special route to citizenship um, that is for people working in the U.S. military. Um, And it was, you know, like a small part of that first book that I just wanted to know more about. And I ended up, over the course of, you know, five years interviewing 72 immigrants who enlisted in the U.S. military as non-U.S. citizens. And at first, you know, I was curious about the naturalization process because that's, you know, what I knew. And then um, and it became a lot more than that because, you know, I learned about the special programs that people would enlist through and, you know, learned about what it was like to be an immigrant in the military, and also learned about deported veterans, which is part of the story. So the book kind of grew um, out of a focus on citizenship and became about much more than that.
0: That's excellent. And the sort of growth really comes through in the book. um, Because one of the things that in the introduction you talk about that really interested me is kind of this ex-anti belief that lots of people have that Sit the right to citizenship might be a key reason that immigrants would, or sort of the right to for long-term residency or something related to this, might be a key reason that an immigrant would, or immigrants would sign up for the military. And you kind of, particularly for green card holders specifically, found that that was not always the case. Would you just talk about this? Because this surprised me, honestly, sort of, I was, I was expecting this to play a slightly larger role than I think it, it really did for at least some of your participants.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I think it's um, a common assumption. And right now, the U.S. military is in a serious recruitment crisis, and the worst in 25 years. And, you know, they're targeting immigrant communities for recruitment. And, and there's this assumption, you know, when I talk to people who hear about the, the crisis that, you know, the citizenship is the reason that immigrants enlist. But, but I it's true for some people. But we also have to keep in mind that, Although there are exceptions, like the vast majority of immigrants who enlist, they already have a permanent legal residency or permanent lawful residency. They are green card holders, and a lot of them grew up in the U.S. So they're enlisting for very similar reasons that non-immigrants enlist. They might be worried about paying for college. They uh, might be attracted to ideas of warrior masculinity and becoming a real man and they love guns. Um, All these reasons that they share with folks who are not immigrants. And citizenship is important for some subset of immigrants who enlist. And I found it really was more of an attraction for people who immigrated as young adults. So older teenagers and early 20s um, and they often if they were interested in becoming a citizen through the military route, which is theoretically, if not in reality, faster, it was because they had, you know, some situation they needed to remedy. So I remember one person had a, a mother who was, you know, really sick and he wanted to sponsor her migration, which is easier if you're a U.S. citizen. Um, and that was was driving him and um and someone else who, you know, watched cousins be deported and really felt the insecurity of not having U.S. citizenship, um, and that drove him. You know, that was a factor for him. But the I, I would say most of the people I talked to, amazingly, some people didn't even were not even particularly aware of the faster route to citizenship when they enlisted. They were not focused on that. In fact, they were more focused on proving that they were they qualified to enlist to show the recruiters that they are truly interested they're committed to passing the tests and uh so um it was not really on the radar for a lot of people at all
0: yeah and there was there was another thing that really struck me just going through the sort of the things you introduced is for a number of your participants, there was kind of a transnational military identity um and that was or like sort of transnational transili you know, or sometimes people who served in multiple militaries. Like, could you just talk through that? That also was just not something I was expecting.
1: It was also not what I expected when I set out uh, to do this research. and It was fascinating. Although if you think about it, you you probably should have expected some of this. And so, yeah, it's what I call transnational militarism and it expressed itself in multiple ways. In the US for non-immigrants having family members in the military is one of the strongest predictors that you yourself will join. But, but to some extent that that also works for immigrants whose family members, brothers, fathers, usually grandfathers served in other militaries, even sometimes in militaries that were uh, fighting the US military. Um, and just that kind of culture of militarism and valorization of military values and discipline and again warrior masculinity it transcended borders and so the story with um of a, of a marine that opens my book is one of these examples where his grandfather was a, a member of the military in Peru like a career military and you know he kind of thought of his grandfather as this like a real man like he really emulated him as a, as a youth. <laughs> and even though it had nothing to do with the U.S. military, that helped push them into the military in the U.S. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there, there were folks who either um, were members of the military elsewhere or attempted to join the military in their home countries, were unsuccessful, and continued their quest to be members of the military in the U.S. So there was someone... In India, who wanted to become an officer and it didn't work out. He didn't pass some tests or some hurdles. Um, And then there were multiple people I talked to who um, served in... There's a mandatory military service for Korean men. Um, So they had served in Korea. And then they migrated um, often as international students to the United States. And then they enlisted in the U.S. military. And their experience in Korea kind of laid the path to enlistment. So I um, had one really interesting inter- interview with a guy who actually had like a terrible time in the Korean military, uh, really, really hated it, you know, just felt uh, just despair. He, he talked about it at length, but at some point he went to a U.S. military base with his commander um, and was really deeply impressed. Him. And he said, well, this is what the military should be like. And you know it stayed with him you know for years and in the u.s he ended up enlisting and that shows like really the kind of the global hegemonic power of u.s military right you know there's a lot of u.s bases in korea and part of you know a lot of people resist these bases and oppose these bases and all the harm that they do um but they also have this powerful cultural role um and you know some some Locals are impressed by them, and then the associations with modernity and power um, that can be that, that can continue to work after they migrate.
0: Awesome. Well, before we continue through the book, I just want to ask, sort of like a positionality question: What was it like doing research with people in an institution and in sort of institutional cultures and on an institution? That without inferring too much from the book, you clearly don't like.
1: <laughs> what a great question! Yes, uh, because what I should have also said to your first question is that yes, I'm you know I'm not a member of the military, but also, you know, I was um, the when, when the US um, after nine eleven in two thousand and three, um, you know, went into active global war on terror you know i was part of the protests and opposition to the war and and it was a very important kind of milestone in my my own life and so here i am studying the military right and the positionality is very important for because i i am an immigrant and but i'm not a member of the military and so in my interviews um i shared that i was an immigrant and um you know often my um participants wanted to like know more about it or had questions for me about it. And it allowed us to kind of do some shortcuts in terms of the immigration process with which of course I'm familiar because also this is what I study, (laughs) what my degree is. And, but, um, because I also had personally gone through it, but the military part, um, it was actually kind of helpful that I was not familiar with it so much because, um, people really take the time to explain things that w- would I think otherwise be like mentioned the shortcuts because they really saw me and I'm like well she doesn't know what she's talking about so I'm just gonna really break it down and explain it and the military has so many acronyms so many acronyms um, and I uh, you know in my book I have a whole long list of them <laughs> to help the reader but it was it was hard in the beginning to be like what is happening in this conversation and Um, you know, having people know that I was new to the context really helped um, with them explaining it. um, And I, you know, it was a steep learning curve, but it was really helpful. But in terms of um, the, the part of your question, that's about the fact that, you know, my approach is that in this book is that the U.S. military is an incredibly harmful institution. This is not a book about, you know, how immigrants assimilate, into American society, through the U.S. military. It's a a book about the harms of the U.S. military. And uh, once you read it, I hope one of the conclusions is that the U.S. military should not exist. So um, there is a whole range of politics among people in the military and veterans. I think people assume that like everyone who's in the military is like rah-rah, military is great. A lot of people are, but a lot of people are critical. a lot of people say this is a job and and also a lot of people change uh, how they think about it over time um, as they spend time in the military after they leave. Um, you know, there's there are whole organizations of you know leftist dissenting veterans who are in the forefront of fighting militarization, fighting U.S. empire. Um, so it's not necessarily like, of course, it colored. Um, Kind of my approach um, in this project, but it also, you know, helped me to see the diversity in the political stances of the people that I was talking to, which among immigrants was also very, very diverse. There are people who, for example, you know, um, join the Marines, but did not want to become a U.S. citizen for years because of their critique of the U.S. empire. I mean, that that happens.
0: Like the world is a big place with lots of people in it. Um, that's what makes it fun. Um, but yeah, so tell me a little bit. Sort of, you you begin your first sort of like more empirical chapter by talking about the the ideas that after the end of the formal draft, we shift to something that some people have called the poverty draft. Um, which is more or less a fair description in some sense of what goes on. I um, mean, you talk about the immigrant twist on this and sort of what is the immigrant twist and what ways are immigrants similar to and dissimilar from other sort of Americans who um, get drafted in, particularly in my understanding, I think it's important to, to distinguish are exclusively talking about enlisted soldiers um, or almost exclusively talking about enlisted soldiers. in my understanding and sort of like how this, this process of enlistment is similar and is not similar from citizens, um, citizen passport holding Americans or something
1: like that. Right, people who were born in the U.S., right? Um, Yeah, it's what I call like the uh, immigrant twist on the story of of enlistment. Um, Right, so critics of the military and counter-recruitment activists um, do refer to the poverty draft which is the idea that even though since 1973 we no longer have a draft draft where you have to serve in the military, economic factors, you know, are really important in pushing people to enlist. And yes, my book is about um, enlisted uh, soldiers, Marines, um, and so on. Um, When you commission as an officer in the U.S. military, you have to be a U.S. citizen. So that's just, you know, it's not part of the story. Even though, you know, there's it is part of the story that some people that I talked to were planning to become officers in the future. That was their plan. Um, so if we think about the poverty draft, um, there, immigrants have a lot in common with non-immigrants in terms of worrying about how am I going to pay for college and enlisting for that reason. That's one of the top you know, reasons that youth enlist in the U.S. military, fear of college debt, inability to pay for college Um And it's also why, you know, the U.S. military is very nervous about anything like student debt cancellation um, or increases in minimum wages. Um, It even kind of makes the economic situation of uh, young workers in the U.S. better, undermines enlistment. The immigrant twist on the poverty draft is that, um, you know, immigrants have like additional sources of economic stress um, that stem from the, criminalization of immigration in the U.S. and militarization of the immigration system and borders. So there might be members of families that have tremendous debt, you know, tens of thousands of dollars um, to migration brokers that help them come over. Because the more difficult you you make um, crossing into the United States, whether through visas or crossing the border. Um, it doesn't stop people from coming, but it makes it more expensive. And so then, you know, people are paying off these debts with high interests for a really long time. Um, so as a young person who is, would be in a family with that situation, like that might push you to enlist. It might push you also to enlist and sign up for a more dangerous occupation that exposes you to more risk because there's a signing bonus and you get that cash um, that can go uh, towards, you know, paying off the debt, the... Uh, the the debt that your family has from coming in also one of my participants comes to mind who enlisted um and got a ten thousand dollar bonus which she used to help um pay for legal costs of her brother who was in immigration detention fighting deportation right so when these youth are part of families that are fighting you know deportation our immigrant detention, there are all these additional costs that might push them to enlist. Um, so that's the like kind of the immigrant twist on the, on the poverty draft. There are other reasons that people um, enlist in the military. It's not just the poverty draft, and often it's a combo of things. Um, so we already talked about transnational militarism. So militarism period is a very uh, important factor. The US, like militarism is so normalized in US society. You know the, uh, kind of the celebration the, um of the military is everywhere football games movies right the department of defense is like is giving uh money to hollywood to um you know add pro-military messaging to just blockbuster films um there are recruiters um, reaching ever younger people through video games there are recruiters in schools like, it's really, if you grow up in the U.S., particularly in poor communities of, co- of color, military is there is everywhere, and there's such strong messaging. Um, but then a immigrant twist on that is that, additionally, you have this transnational militarism, especially for those who migrated at older ages, where, you know, they might have a recruiter come to their high school or see, um, you know, in cultural products, but they also remember, like, just the honor heaped on members of the military maybe in the country that they came from and that might contribute to um, why they enlisted as well.
0: Um, so I guess we talked a little bit about our prior beliefs uh, coming in that sort of like immigration or sort of citizenship might play a larger ro- a role in people's decisions. Um, and you did mention that that was not as, as prominent as you expected, partially because or largely because of people doing this are green card holders. Um, but you also mentioned that it is at least theoretically faster to get a citizenship as a member of the military if it has spotty results in actuality. Would you just talk about that process, what you found looking at that process, um, the challenges and successes people had in attempting to turn military service into a fancy U.S. passport.
1: Yeah, great question. I love talking about this also because it helps, um, you know, uh, counteract some of the advertising and messaging to immigrant communities um, with some findings of what it's really like to become a citizen through the military. Um, and in my in my book, I describe kind of changes over time. There there is a short blip, um, you know, around you know, 2009 through. 2016, a very short historical blip where there is concerted facilitation of naturalization through the military. But before and after and into today, what we have is that on paper, in a time of official hostilities, which we are still in because the global war on terror continues, members of the military uh, um, under the um, Immigration and Nationality Act are immediately eligible for naturalization. So um, during that blip, as I call it, um, you had, um, the military developed a program called naturalization of basic training. And so you would go through basic training, which is an incredibly intense process and at the same time they would be processing your paperwork for naturalization. Um, And so a lot, not all, but a lot of immigrants were who enlisted during that time were able to graduate from basic training and also get sworn in as U.S. citizens, you know, same day or the next day. Um, so that was like the, the most facilitated that we had. So for them, the promise of citizenship, citizenship through the military through this faster route was really realized. Um, but let me talk about what happened before and and after. So. The immigration system, if you have gone through it yourself or have a loved one who has, it's, it's incredibly complicated. Um, something like naturalization requires multiple appointments, tons of paperwork, you know, significant fees, um, probably also a good idea to retain an attorney, which is additional fees. All of this um, is not very compatible with military life. So if you're like if you're deplo- you're constantly changing addresses you might be deployed that means your pay- immigration paperwork is getting lost in the mail you're missing appointments it's very hard to take time off in the military and your base might be a 6 7 hour drive away from the nearest US citizenship and immigration service office so a uh, until you know, there was this naturalization basic training and other ways that they facilitated naturalization in the military. Um, the people I spoke to, they just they tended to just wait until they were done with the military to apply um, as civilians, because there were the hurdles were just pretty big. And then a lot of it was also determined by how interested their supervisors were. Some supervisors really wanted people to get naturalized because being a citizen in U.S. military opens up Korea options because you are able to access security clearances that you can't as a non-citizen. And so from a perspective of U.S. military, you do a lot of times want all the immigrants to be naturalized because you can easily like shuffle them into the positions that you need them to be in, which if they're not citizens, you're not able to do because they're stuck kind of in the lowest tiers with exposure to the highest exposure to risk. So I both had people whose, um, you know, supervisors were like, "Well, you need you need to figure out how to get this because I need you to be doing this, uh, or being able to handle the, you know, this type of information or machinery." And I also had people say, "Well, no, they told me that I need to wait because you know there's no time to give me time off and like this is not a priority right now." So it was really driven by the needs of the military rather than the interests of the immigrants themselves. Um, you know, I had talked to people who ended up, even though it's supposed to be the fees are waived for for immigrants in the military, That people who took out loans to pay for the fees because they were ending up doing it as a civilian while they were in the military, completely, like, unable to access this expedited path. There's also a very, like, sad and um, um, important case of, A soldier who um, had to submit fingerprints, which is a standard thing, you know, biometrics for naturalization application, and was doing so while deployed and was killed on the way to getting fingerprints. So he would not have been killed if he hadn't been forced to get another set of fingerprints uh, on top of the ones he had to do for being in the military in the first place. So kind of the the immigration, and after that happened, they decided that your fingerprints from becoming... Uh, um, member of the military would be sufficient for the immigration application as well. So they also say there were like two incredibly complex systems that people were stuck between. Right? you're You're in the military that has you know all these complicated rules and and you know, it's a total institution, right? We talk you know sociology language, and then you have the immigration system and they're not compatible with each other, and it's like really hard to navigate it at the same time. Um, So after this brief period of facilitation of naturalization in 2016, 2017, uh, we went back to um, lack of facilitation for naturalization for those who wanted it because of a kind of flare up in fears around security. Um, And the subtitle of my book is Between Model Immigrant and Security Threat. So there's always kind of like immigrants in the military, the best kind of immigrants. They are not even citizens yet. And look, they love their country so much. um, They're willing to risk their life for it. But the flip side of that has always throughout U.S. history been that. But maybe they're also spies. Maybe they're, you know, we should worry about them being a security threat because ultimately they're foreigners. Um, So that seesaw is always an operation in 2016, 2017. um, They instituted new security clearances uh, for immigrants in the military that made it just so difficult, almost impossible for a lot of people to pass. These were security clearances that were pretty high level. And so they would ask, they would seek to determine whether a person had ties to people in foreign countries, which most immigrants do, making it impossible to pass. Um, and at that point, it became easier to just become a citizen through the civilian, as a civilian, than through the military. So on paper, we still had this faster path. Then with the, once Trump got elected, he also instituted a 180-day waiting period. So it was no longer immediate. Then was then overturned by a federal judge. But there's still not, you know, there's the naturalization basic training program is ostensibly restarted, but has, at this point has really processed very few people. So we haven't returned to this kind of a larger facilitation of naturalization. So let's just say to not necessarily immediately believe the messaging of the US military when it says you will become a citizen quickly and easily when you enlist.
0: Fair enough. To be honest with you, I'm not sure I believed that before, but I certainly don't now. <laughs> um, so it certainly convinced me. Um, one of the things that struck me going through, particularly introduction that led to a whole chapter, is that, well, a number of your participants were concerned about becoming injured before entering the military, which Seems like a very obvious concern. Not many of them were concerned about injuring someone, which actually surprised me because this, I mean, I was a teenager in the United States. We all sort of saw military agreements. This was a major concern for me. Um, But anyways, um, so could you just tell us something about sort of the injuries of assimilation, as you call them, or sort of the ways in which being in the military ends badly? For some of your participants, or ended in sort of like injuries and harm for some of your participants.
1: Right. Thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, you know, um, I, you know, I have a chapter it's called "Injuries of Assimilation," and it is focused on the military, but part it's also in conversation with the larger literature in migration studies and assimilation. It's really it's a challenge to that literature to rethink the whole concept of assimilation. But to return to the military specifically in my in this project, so when I started, when I developed my interview questions and you know um, was just kind of setting up my plan for research, um, I did not want to ask a lot of questions about like experiences with service in the military directly, and. That was not because I was not interested in it, or I don't think it's important. It's because, like, repeatedly, I was told by veterans that they're they did not want, were they were not interested and did not want to participate in what they describe as the type of psychological research that's really focused on like PTSD and harm, and they were sick of this type of research and there's been enough and like it felt predatory and they didn't want to do it anymore. So I said, well. I'm not going to directly ask detailed questions about that, that kind of thing. Um, and so it was surprising to me then how many people ended up talking about all the ways, all the harm that they experienced. And they ended up talking about that because it was just impossible to tell their story and to explain their experience without explaining those parts. Um, so without directly asking about it, like almost everybody, just this very striking number of my participants ended up telling me about really serious and devastating physical injuries they sustained during their training and during their, you know, the work in the military, um, without which it would be impossible to understand like their life trajectories, which is what, you know, the stories that they were sharing with me. Um, And part of it was um, kind of the normalization of pain and suffering and injury in, for military workers, um, which if we think of the immigrant twist on that was that immigrants, particularly those who migrated at older ages, and so they may have an accent or they perceive this foreign by, by people alongside them, their fellow workers and supervisors, would really be pressured to downplay and ignore their injuries even more than the norm in the military uh, and not because they were trying to prove that they were in the military for the right reasons. They were not crybabies um, to prove their belonging there. Um, So I remember one talking to one woman um, from Pakistan um, who sustained like really serious injuries, jumping, um, like parachute jumping, broken hips, like multiple bones. And her commander was like, you're faking it. You Mavni soldiers, and we can talk about Mavni, which is one of those special programs for immigrants to come into the military. You Mavnis are, you know, faking it. You're not here for the right reasons. And she was not ready to, to jump again, but she did. And then she broke even more bones. And, you know, she was disabled when I talked to her. Um, and, you know, just lived with a lot of pain. <laughs> um, so... To zoom out a little bit, we have researchers um, and certainly the military itself that is really focused on, thing, explaining, um, you know, all the ways that immigrants are high-quality um, workers in the military. They are less likely to um, break their contract. Um, they're more likely to like meet the recruitment requirements, or other research that shows like these are the ways that. The military is good for immigrants but none of that research is really addressing you know kind of the harms that you sustain as a military worker and i just have only spoken about the military the physical harm there's also like the psychological harm of being a military worker and of course which was the beginning of your question there's also like the harm to other people to communities to you know, other places across the world, the harm that the military does to life on Earth. You know, it's the like biggest polluter in the world. Um, how can we really talk about the military as being an institution that helps immigrants assimilate without looking at what the U.S. military does? Um, it, it, it's it's a very dark. It's limited in it's dark. Way of of seeing the world, um, you know, it's just like serious blinkers on. And part of partly what I was interested in doing is is taking those down. And part of it also um, is that, you know, in the U.S. society, without you know, like forget about immigrants for a second, there's really dueling uh, images of veterans, right? You have kind of the veneration of veterans, like super patriotic. These are people who risked all to keep America safe, whatever that means. Um, but the flip side of that, you also have fear of immigrants, of veterans. You have fear of like veterans who are harmed by their military labor, right? They have PTSD, they have substance abuse disorder, they're, they're unhoused, right? You see veterans on the street panhandling, you know, standing in traffic, wearing their uniform. and um, When we talk about immigrants assimilating through the military, do we think about those images of veterans? And veterans are more likely to have, you know, they are likely to have interaction with criminal justice system, substance abuse disorders, sustained, you know, physical and psychological harm, exposure to harmful chemicals, um, you know, the list really goes on. Um, and of course, this also brings me to deported veterans, right? immigrants who um, are veterans who have not acquired U.S. citizenship, are deported, have been deported, there are thousands of deported veterans. Um, you know, that's that's what assimilation through the military did to them. Um, but I'll, I'll stop there, because <laughs> I kind of trailed off.
0: Okay. so. Um... You already mentioned one of your participants was a Mavni, um, but our audience, unless they sort of serve in the one of the military branches or are military workers of some sort, or really just know what Mavni is, I did not, could you just tell us what that is, um, and sort of just, you have a whole chapter on the story of Mavni, and I think it really is interesting because these are a different set of... Of immigrant military workers, but they sort of have similarities and differences with the, with the other groups. On yeah. um, the actual, what you would call green card soldiers who the book. So maybe just tell us the story of Mavni.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Mavni, what is that? It's of course an acronym. So it stands for Military Accessions of Vital National Importance. Um, and that was a program that first piloted in 2009 and then ramped up and ended around 2016, 2017, um, through which um, you could enlist without a green card, without lawful permanent residency. Um, and it really primarily enlisted people with on student visas. Um, although some people who were on temporary work visas like H-1B, or asylum seekers, and for a couple of years in the middle, um, it enlisted DACA recipients, so Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. But that was only so that was about five hundred people out of a total of ten thousand. Um, and so, what were their uh, skills of vital national interest? Um, there were a very small number of physicians, but the vast majority of the special skill that was deemed vital importance was speaking a language. That was on the list of 50 some languages that were of vital importance to the United States, which has base military bases all over the world and so needs a lot of languages. Um, so, Spanish is not on that list because there's plenty of people in the military who speak Spanish uh, without having to have a special program, but a ton of other languages are. In most, um, the largest groups that ended up enlisting. Through the special program were um, Chinese, Korean, Indian, international students. Um, there were some, you know, people with master's degrees, people with PhDs, um, who, if they were U.S. citizens, they would have been become officers, but they were instead enlisting into, you know, some of the lower ranks of the of the army, primarily, and then eventually also um, the army reserve. In, for a lot of that time, they would get citizenship very quickly because the naturalization and that basic training was also operating. And it was an incredible attraction for this set of immigrants, unlike kind of the people that I talked about in, in the beginning of the podcast. they um, Normally, someone on a temporary visa, like a student visa or employment visa, faces decades of uncertainty before they become a U.S. citizen, and a lot of them will not. They have to be sponsored by employers. It's it's just a really there's waiting, you know, there's long waiting lists because they're country quotas that uh especially are tough for people from India and China. So they were able to skip, you know, what is often 20, 25 years of an immigration process between what where they were at with their visas and US citizenship immediately. So they enlisted as you know on a student visa. And then when basic training at the end of basic training, there were U.S. citizens It was a tremendous shortcut for them. And a lot of them were motivated by that to enlist. And there was it was competitive. It was, you know, there was only at the very beginning, there was only a few places in the United States where you could enlist in this program. People would fly there to try to do it, like pool money. To, you know, it was it was a really strikingly different situation from just general recruitment. Um, for, for people who have a green card or have a citizenship, and so what happened with Mav- Mavni is that once the security clearances, uh, the security um, screenings started to get implemented in 2016, um, which I should also note are, are very expensive. <laughs> the government was spending a ton of money on this. Uh, they created what what people refer to with Mavni's themselves referred to as a Mavni limbo. It was like a, a legal limbo whereas they have enlisted in the U.S. military, they signed the papers but they were waiting years to actually start their basic training to ship to basic training because um, a lot of them like would not get a favorable determination on these screening tests. So they would just be stuck in this strange legal situation and then more and more and more people got failed to pass the security clearances, And so their very ability to stay in the United States uh, was um, threatened. I talked to people who were facing returning to places like Pakistan um, where it was known that they had attempted to enlist in the U.S. military and their families were already, you know, suffering attacks and, you know, violence because their son had done this. And now they were having to come back. And really, there were several that were attempting to get um, asylum in the United States because they felt that their life was threatened where they come back. You know, joining the U.S. military in some countries is a crime. And then, so people signed up, they signed, you know, they signed a contract, waited many years in this legal limbo. um, And then they were at the end of it, they lost their ability to stay in the United States and were facing a situation where they might have to go to prison were they to return. Um, so it was a, there are multiple Mavni-related lawsuits. Some have been, re- this one has been resolved favorably to the immigrants and some people were able to get citizenship, but others are still pending. Um, so it, it was a kind of a, a dire and messy end to the program.
0: I see. Um, and so you mentioned that there are some deported veterans. This is both, I think, something a lot of your participants. You mentioned at the end that one of the few things that you were willing to recommend that was a, what we might call a policy recommendation um, was that people should actually know about this before they enlist, that sort of enlistment is not protection from deportation. Um, could you just maybe talk about sort of how this came to be and sort of like one or two of the stories and kind of walk us through how this how this is true that there are thousands of deported veterans of how, is, how is this
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, after 1996, um, immigration you know reform severely criminalized immigrants. This is under President Clinton and um, created, you know, an immigration category or expanded the immigration category of aggravated felony, which is not a criminal category. It's an immigration category that, you know, is a really um, very broad category of various um, types of crimes. Um, What that meant is that if you didn't have your citizenship, even if you had a green card, if you were convicted of of an aggravated felony, um, that you would be um, deportable. And this could be retroactive, so someone who was convicted twenty years ago, twenty years before, would still be deportable. Um, and there is, there's no special provision for veterans in this situation. So, as is true for veterans in general, um, when leaving, when separating from the military, a lot of people have a hard time. They might have a hard time with substance abuse disorder that began in the military. Just adjusting to civilian life can be very difficult financially, socially, in terms of your social networks. And a lot of people come into contact with the criminal justice system. But if they're an immigrant, they are deportable, even though they're a veteran. So the I did talk to deported veterans um, all in northern Mexico. Some of them I talked to on Skype back in the day for Zoom. Um, And I also went to um, Juarez and talked to people in person and hung out with them a bit to get a sense um, of what their lives were like. And so the common scenario there was that, um, you know, after they separated from the military, um, they would be convicted for various crimes. Some of them said they did it. Some of them said they didn't do it. The point was that they they all pled guilty to them. I don't think anyone that I spoke to even had a trial. The vast, vast, vast majority is our criminal justice colleagues know. Um, people plead guilty, right? And, and most of them, I think all of them, the ones that I talked to, they weren't apprised of the consequences of pleading guilty, the immigration consequences of pleading guilty. They were just uh, trying to avoid, uh, you know, 25 years, when it, you know, they were told, well, if you plead guilty you'll get 10 and if it goes to trial it'll be you know much more and they weren't thinking about or didn't know about the immigration consequences of it some of them actually thought they were already u.s citizens because they you know they were misled by recruiters they thought it was automatic you know they were 17 when they enlisted they had no idea what they were doing it seemed like they got it And so some of them were really like shocked that at the end of their term like they were Ice came and got them, and, and others kind of understood it earlier on, but didn't have resources for both a regular attorney and the an immigration attorney. Um, because in the immigration system, you don't get a you know re- you don't have a right to representation, so you have to just pay for it yourself. Um, these are not people with a lot of resources, so they ended up, um, you know, and people get deported to all over the world. It's just that. I ended up talking to the ones who were deported to North Mexico, or to Mexico, period. Um, But they would be driven over to the border and, you know, released. And it was a really rough situation. So um, a lot of people, like, didn't have very good Spanish and didn't have a lot of connections in Mexico anymore. You know, they had grown up in the United States, including I talked to one person who was adopted. The Spanish was very bad and almost non-existent. Um, in addition, in that, in that region, um, to be known or viewed as a former military places you at additional risk because, like, um, you know, cartels might see you as having special useful skills with guns and violence. Um, so there was that risk on top of it. I mean, what was really, like, amazing and inspiring is they supported veterans. Kind of self-organized and formed um, you know organizations um, and you know what they call bunkers, kind of little community hubs where deported veterans come and try to get assistance and get connected to legal support and, and just you know survival support, place to crash food. Um, until quite recently it was extremely difficult to access your veterans benefits if you're deported. So there's no VA in Mexico. So you can't get your healthcare. You also could not get your disability pay because you couldn't cross into the US to be evaluated. There were all these barriers to just getting veterans benefits, um, which some some of them have been remedied since, um, since, you know, I wrote my book and it's really helpful for for these folks to have at least, um, you know, some access to veterans' benefits to live on. And then big picture-wise, and this is something that actually one of the deported veterans pointed out, is we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. There's some people also talked about the school-to-military pipeline. But what we have is, like, a school-to-military-to-prison-to-deportation pipeline. And one veteran had like a really, you know, incredible way of talking about it by the uniforms that he wore, right? So he said, "I w- went from wearing military green to prison grays," um, and you know, it's just kind of walked us through kind of this this journey from being in. Um, Growing up as a person of color in a poor community and going to high school that was swarmed with recruiters and being told that, you know, you 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 either join the military or you go to prison because you'll be a gang member. And then going to the military, then going to prison, and then eventually getting deported. Another incredible um, story that I learned was one of the deported veterans told me that the job that he had in the military was sewing military uniforms, because by law, these uniforms have to be made in the U.S. But who makes them? Prison labor. So literally, this veteran was sewing military uniforms in prison for, you know, I don't know, whatever the very low pay that the particular prison might have had, you know, 10 or 20 cents an hour, Um, and then was deported afterwards.
0: Awesome. So we are coming to the end of this interview, um, but just for our listeners who are not looking at the at the book like I am, um, it's lovely by the way. Y'all should check it out. Um, you do not end with the standard conclusion. Uh, the last chapter is called "Speak Truth to the Power of the War Machine," um, and you, I, 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 I foreshadow that you pretty deliberately push back against something one might call a policy recommendation. Um, although you do say that sort of giving people their veterans benefits would actually make the world a slightly a better place. Um, but you kind of, do you want to just walk us through why you decided not to do that and kind of what you decided to do instead?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, I think that in the genre of social science books, right, that it's pretty standard to end with policy recommendations. And and certainly like when I talk about my work and present it, people want to know about my policy recommendations, but the policy recommendations would be like how to make it better for how to make immigrants lives better when they're working in the military. Um, and that felt to me at odds with the rest of my book. Um, I don't think that's helpful to reform the military to make it less odious for its workers or whatever particular segment of of, of its workers, I don't think that sets us on a path of abolition in this case. Um, And really, that was my lens. And that's what I came away from my research with. And it comes back to something, you know, we mentioned a couple of times in our time together. And it's really the unfortunate um, way that in the U.S., because of our hegemonic militarism, we don't ask often enough uh, what U.S. military does and its effect on you know, the world and on the United States, right? The U.S. military is also crushing indigenous um, pipeline resistance, right? It's uh, helping police, uh, urban uprisings, um, Black Lives Matter uh, revolts, um, aside from also being on the U.S.-Mexico border Like, I I don't want to reform that. I did not want to come up with a list of recommendations to make it better for immigrants to be part of this. I think that immigrants, like anybody else, immigrant workers, you know, both are harmed and benefit from military service and are complicit in it. And they are also, um, as they're complicit, there is also a lot of ways that they do and can resist from small everyday acts to, you know, big symbolic acts. the very um the first person i'm gonna pause here to get this right if you don't mind
0: no worries i actually read that yesterday it's a, it's a good anecdote um and so i will pretend that there's a commercial break here although luckily for all of you i actually have nothing to sell you except for this book which is pretty good but you can you can get it out of my tea on your
1: The very first soldier in the U.S. to refuse deployment to Iraq was a green card soldier, Camilo Mejia,
0: um,
1: was not a U.S. citizen and and whose path to citizenship is forever foreclosed because of his courageous act, who spent almost a year in military prison. Um, So I wanted to end my book with stories of resistance to U.S. military from within by its workers, and as well as, by communities in the U.S. um, and outside of the U.S. who are doing really crucial anti-military work um, because I find that far more hopeful than policy recommendations to make the military a bit better for the workers. Awesome.
0: Um, And if I was a good podcast host, I would transition from that lovely thing into my final question. But I actually have one that's a curiosity question that was not in your book. But I was wondering, to what extent is this use or of immigrant um, military workers unique to the United States? Or have you encountered other researchers somewhere else in the world who also sort of speak of sort of immigrant military workers in other places? Is this uh, Do you think that this is a uniquely American story or is it a, a story that, that, that exists in similar ways in other places?
1: Yeah, no, um, it definitely is not a U.S. story only. Um, it is, to a large extent, um, also a story of imperialism. Right, so colonial powers, the United States included, um, you know, have always used colonized populations in their militaries as often kind of second-class workers. Um, today, you know, France has the Foreign Legion, which you know, people who are not French citizens can join. In, interestingly enough, some um, people I interviewed were also had tried to join foreign, the Foreign le- uh, Legion in France. Um, the UK has um, the um, in the UK, people who are in former colonies of the UK can also um, enlist in their military. Um, this is true in Canada and um, other settler colonial nations like like Australia. So this certainly not a unique U.S. US um, situation. There are differences in terms of the path to citizenship. Um, so in the U.S. with the, the laws that allow immediate during wartime path to naturalization is um, kind of, you could say, better <laughs> uh, situation than legally in terms of immigration status that exists in a lot of other countries where non-citizens can enlist. Or serve in the military in some way maybe in a separate unit
0: awesome and then my final questions is would you like to give us a book recommendation of something you're reading that is interesting to you um if you don't have one that is my fault for not properly communicating the question list which is how for those of you listeners out there who wonder how all of these authors on these podcasts have a book recommendation just at their fingertips voila, it's not because they're special, it's because we tell them in advance. Um, But if you have a book you'd like to recommend that you're reading of any type, that would be lovely.
1: Yeah, the book that I recently read that just blew me away, and it's one of those things that, oh, I so wish I had read it um, before publishing mine, um, but better late than never, is Nadia Abu El-Hajj, Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America, um, it's out with Verso. I think it came out last year. And, you know, not um, this book really focuses on um, PTSD diagnosis and kind of our how in the US, um, you know, there's a development of a whole culture around the harm, psychological harm to US military veterans. Um, and I, It's a fascinating book that makes all these connections you never thought of, but it also really pushed me in how um, I understand immigrant military labor in in how I wrote my book and that it is critical of conceptualizing um, members of the military as workers, per se. And so that's another whole big conversation. But I love books that challenge the way that I was thinking, even though it, it kind of makes me want to go back and rewrite some parts of my book. So highly recommend.
0: Awesome. And then finally, what are you working on next? Um, You are a professor. I assume that means you have to work on something next.
1: (laughs) Well, a lot of what keeps me busy is is actually union organizing, um, which I consider part of uh, my work as a professor. But I'm completing a book called Beyond Dreamers, with my colleague Amy Sin, that's about the experiences of undocumented college students at CUNY, where I work. Um, and I also have am completing another book um, with a whole team of folks on um, the other college debt crisis, which is not the individual college debt you know that that students have, um, but the indebtedness of colleges and universities themselves, and the way that you know that really shapes what goes on in these um, on our campuses
0: awesome um so thank you very much for that the book is green card soldier between model immigrant and security threat it's out of mit press my guest was sophia up um thank you very much for being on the podcast and we're off